So, as we continue in James, James was written, remember, to uh, a group of uh, Jewish believers that were spread out across the, the nation, and they had, they had heard the gospel through, through different sources that had been sent out from Jerusalem. And now James is in Jerusalem, and he sees there's some issues with the Jewish believers. So he's writing this letter, really, to Jewish believers, but all God, all, all God scripture is good for us to, 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 to learn from. So today we're going to be talking about justified by works. And when I say that, when I say that, it's like weird. Because Christians don't use that phrase very often. How many, I mean, Christians don't say we're justified by our works. Okay? And it just seems wrong. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Yet here in James 2.24, James says this, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So what's going on? What does James have in mind when he says, We are justified by a faith that works. What does he mean? Well, hopefully, by the end of today's uh, lesson, we'll have a better idea of what he means. See, remember that James is on this quest to show us what true religion looked like, what true Christianity looks like. See, and remember, he's writing to people, by the way, that were very religious people to start with. They had religion down. The Jewish people had religion down. And I don't even like that word because, uh, but it is what it is. They had their religion down, but, but James is saying, look, that's not really true religion. That's not what, the, what Christ taught. That's actually not what the Old Testament taught. You've messed it up. And so, he was saying a religion that simply says God is one, which even the demons, by the way, believe. I mean, many encounters in the Bible where Jesus, they knew who Jesus was, but they didn't believe in him. Or a religion that just affirms the elements of our theology. We believe that salvation is by grace and grace alone. And we say Jesus is our saviour, but we never profess him as our Lord. Well, Jesus himself says, I have to be your Lord and saviour. I can't just be your saviour. And so, so James says, a true religion, a true walk with Christ, actually works and does works. See, it, it hears the law and it obeys. It helps wid- widows and orphans in their distress, 
false religion is ineffective towards man. It doesn't work. It offers the needy kind wishes. Nothing more. It is also ineffective towards God. It knows God as king, but not as savior. So it offers no peace or no comfort. You see, false religion takes religion classes at universities and colleges, and it reads books, and it gets smarter at knowing what, what religion is, but it doesn't put any action towards it. True religion seeks a living God. See, false religion analyzes the historic and social context of the Bible instead of studying Scripture itself to hear the very, very voice of God. Because as Christians, we, I believe, this book is the very Word of God written by many different people inspired by God. See, false religion knows what Christian creeds say and assert about God, but that's all. See, true religion knows God himself. A true Christian knows God and has a relationship with him. See, Christianity is about relationship. You couldn't be married and not get to know your spouse. Never talk to them and find out about them. So how can you be a a, a Christian without reading scripture and talking to God? It's impossible. See, James, James 2 contrasts true and false faith in four case studies. We looked at two of them last week. We looked at... Case one where but that shows false religion is useless with mankind in verses 2, 15 through 17. And case two was that false religion is useless with God. Verses 18, 19. And today we're going to look at two more as we finish out chapter two of James. And everyone says, Amen. So... James chapter 2, 20 through 24 says this. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed By his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. See, we do have to put our faith in Christ. That is Number one. See, case study three says there's a difficult obedience, a true faith that is useful towards God. See, James is invited to consider the evidence that faith without deeds 
is useless. See, the evidence is this. Abraham was considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac. See, last week James said false faith helps neither one's neighbors or relationship with God. This lively faith of Abraham contrasts with the worthlessness of false faith. You see, when Abraham believed God, it led to wondrous works and worship. See, James 2.21 refers to the time when God tested Abraham, asking him to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar. So let's take a look at Abraham's story. Abraham had long wanted a son. He wanted an heir from his body and Sarah's so the covenant family would become a nation and bless the world. See, God promised Abraham a child when he was 75 and Sarah was 65. See, we we go, wow. But remember, the life expectancy back then was 120 plus years. So there was still a chance that Abraham and Sarah might have had a child of their own. But time passed. And the chances became slimmer and slimmer until they dwindled to none. And then 10 years after the initial promise, God told Abraham, I am your shield and your very great reward in Genesis 15.1. And Abraham retorted in essence, if you are my great reward, why am I still waiting for a son in verse 2? In reply, this is what God did. In reply, he took Abraham outside his tent and bid him to gaze up at the stars and said, so shall your offspring be. But we really can't appreciate that statement. Like, when, if you live in a city, and you look up at the sky, you may see a hundred stars. But, go out to the field. The best place is, go out to a desert at night. And look up at the sky. See, we have street lights and pollution in the cities and the areas. We don't get to see the full glory of the sky. But if you're in the desert, even just go out to the countryside. I just uh, helped a friend out by staying at the house and walking their dogs and go out late at night in the, and they live in the country. So you go out and you look up at the star. The sky looks different than from my house. I'm telling you. And it's only 10 miles away. But it looks different than when I'm looking at it from my house. So Abraham looks at all these stars. The sky was just lit up. And God is telling him, that is how many offspring you will have. See, in the... He looked, he believed his offspring would indeed be numerous. And then God, in Genesis 15, 6, counted it to him as righteous. And then still, Abraham had to wait another 14 years 
Sarah birthed his son, Isaac, when Abraham was a hundred and Sarah was ninety. And then he grew up. Then when Isaac, Isaac, you see, we seem to think when we hear the story of Abraham that, 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 that Abraham carried his baby son up to the mountain and was going to lay his baby son on an altar and kill him. That is not what happened. Ab- uh, Isaac, which is funny because Isaac's name is, it means laughter. That's why Isaac was called that because God said you will call him Isaac because Sarah laughed at him and said there's no way I'm going to have a baby. And then, because God's got the last laugh. And then he tells him. And then, so Isaac, guess who carries the wood up the mountain? Not his 115-year-old daddy. No. Isaac. The life expectancy was around 120. Isaac is about 100, uh, the, Abraham's about 115, okay? I think Isaac could have took his dad, okay? So there's some willingness here on Isaac's behalf, okay? So they take the wood up, they leave the things. They leave, they leave the, the men that went with them down. But you go, Abraham, you bound your son, You put wood around him on a stone altar that you built. And then you raised a knife to kill your own son. And people go, well, why would God tell him to do that? And why would Abraham do it? And by the way, it's a whole picture of salvation through Jesus Christ. He was put on an altar. He was going to be sacrificed. And Abraham said to his men, this is a little tantalizing clue, clue that he left behind. In Genesis 22.5, Abraham tells his servants, to wait while he and Isaac travel on together, and he promises... We, he uses the, we will be back to you. And in Hebrews, it says, Abraham believed that if necessary, God would raise Isaac from the dead. Hebrews 11, 19. You see, to do that, Abraham believed no matter what, That God had promised him that all the descendants were going to flow from him through Isaac. So, God asking him to sacrifice Isaac didn't mean that Isaac was going to die. It did mean that he was going to die, but it meant that either God was going to allow him to die at that point, or he was going to raise him from the dead, because how can Isaac have children? So Abraham 
knowing what God has done through his life up until this point and the miracle of Isaac. Went up there, raised up the knife, and God grabbed his hand and said, stop, and provided a ram that was actually stuck in the thicket, which this is why it's symbolic to to Christ. The wreath around his head made out of thorns, it's the same word they use. It's to show that yes, one is going to come, my child is going to come, my child is going to die. See, this deed proved Abraham's faith was real. In Genesis 22.12, God says, Now I know you fear God. And James says, Abraham was considered righteous for what he did. James 2.21. And he even dares to say Abraham's faith was completed by his works. Verse 22-24. through So, what is being justified by works mean? See, for Christians that have been raised on Paul... This is an astonishing language. See, how can James say Abraham's faith was completed by his works in verse 22 and a person is justified by his works and not by faith alone in verse 24? But Paul says, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. See, but, but not before God. So, what do the scriptures say? See, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's Romans 4, 1 through 3, which is quoting Genesis 15, 6. See, James is aware that Genesis 15 teaches justification by faith and faith alone because he cites the passage in James 20, verse 23. Even if James wrote his apostle before Paul wrote Galatians and Romans, as most scholars think, most smart people think that he did write it before Galatians and Romans, he knows that Paul taught justification by faith. It's not like he's trying to upend the system here. He knew what what Paul taught and he's teaching something that at the moment sounds different. He knows Abraham looked at the stars, believed, and thus was justified before God. But James also knows that Abraham's faith demonstrated its vitality by its works. It's alive because of its work. See, whether James consciously corrected an abuse of Paul's teaching or not, he certainly corrected an erroneous concept of faith. See, Adolf Schlalter, a Swiss scholar, said this, this way, that I say I have faith cannot possibly free me from sin, guilt, and punishment. How could something I say be my deliverance? 
Not that I say I have faith, but that I exercise my faith. That saves me. Situates me in God's peace, brings me God's grace, and is my righteousness before God. If faith gave me merely words, then it would be of use, after all, to say I have faith. But that is a sinister thought. Is that all I am? A thinker and a talker? God has given me a life. And that means he has planted a will in me that can act, that must act, with unattainable necessity. Unalterable necessity. Service to God is action. I should thank God that I can act as one who trusts. See, our works are grounded in grace. See, works are not the grounds of grace, but they are grounded in grace and our faith. As the Renaissance scholar Erasmus said, unproductive faith is faith in name only. People think they are being mocked when you say to them, keep warm and well fed and give them neither food nor clothing. Just so, the person who offers no tangible proofs of of his faith, but repeats every day, I believe in God, I believe in God, seems to be mocking God. See, James is saying this, if you believe in God, that by your works you would be reflecting him. So if you believe in God, if you believe Jesus saved you, you would be reflecting Jesus. There should be some outward look of what it looks like. Not just words. See, we have to understand that when James says Abraham was justified by works in verse 24, he does not mean Abraham had obtained salvation or earned God's favor by his works. Abraham was justified, that is, declared righteous in God's court the day he believed. How then is Abraham justified by his works? See, the word justify still has a judicial sense. But here, to be, ju- to be justified is to, be vind- to vindicate or to make clear. And Paul in Romans, to justify typically means to declare righteous. See, James says, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God, verse 23. That is, Abraham's work of offering Isaac vindicates, makes clear God's declaration that he believes. So that his faith is correctly counted to him as righteousness. See, the works that God's confidence in Abraham is well-founded. His works also confirm God's declaration that he is a man of God and his works complete his faith, showing that it is genuine faith. We can all talk. We can all say we believe. It's our actions that show that we believe. 
So Paul and, and James actually agree. See, in God's court, believers are justified the moment they believe. When they trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, their sin is laid on Christ and Christ's righteousness is imputed to them. Remember, I always say it like this. This is me. This is Jesus. God goes like this with his magic mouse and he goes like this to all my sin. And he pushes copy, well, he pushes delete after he makes it all blue. Right? And then he goes over here and he goes to Jesus and he goes, highlights all of Jesus' righteousness. And then he copies that and he pastes it on me or you. And he says, this is who I see. I don't see your sin. I don't see you. I see you. I see Jesus' righteousness on your life. But then we should reflect that righteousness. You see, yet works also justify, in this secondary sense, they indicate God's declaration that we are right with him. Because they prove that we are alive in Christ. You know, that's why we call it... you. When you become a Christian, you get reborn. You are a new creation. The old has passed away. See, when we see a believer is justified by faith alone, we mean that that believer adds nothing. They add no works in order to earn or gain God's favor. See, good works are a necessity, a necessary not a condition prior to salvation, but a consequence of salvation. They're a consequence of salvation. Just like if I put a pot of water on the stove and turn it on, it's going, the consequence is it's going to boil. You can't change it. If you accept Christ, there's a consequence to accepting Christ, and it means there will be actions see, just as healthy fruit tree, as Jackie read, by its very nature automatically bears good fruit. So a genuine believer automatically performs good works as the fruit of our new nature. See, real faith is effective towards God. There's four views to view relationship between salvation and works. So, the little hour means produces. We can say, works produce salvation. See, view one says, if we do enough good works, they produce salvation by earning God's favor. Nah. We can say, view two says, that if we believe and perform works, then we are saved. That's how we obtain salvation. So we have to have faith and do good works, then we'll get saved. 
Matthew 3. We can have faith, and that gives us salvation. All we need is faith, and you are saved. Or, there's view 4. Faith gives us, produces salvation, and then it makes us work. Okay? So, no Christian adheres to view 1 that works produces salvation. I'm sure I've got some people that could testify about the next one. View two is officially, traditional, a Roman Catholic view of salvation. They adhere to this view that faith plus works equals salvation. And then you've got view three. Some evangelical Christians believe all you need to do is accept Christ and live however you want. And you're saved. That is view three. I don't agree with that. I don't believe that you accept Christ and not, do not change. I think it's impossible. How, according to the Bible, when you accept Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. How can you still be the same person after you accept Christ? Can't be. So yes, we are saved by grace and grace alone. Through faith in God. Which will produce salvation. Which will produce works. See... Works are the necessary result of a spiritual life. Matthew 25, 34 through 36 says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. See, faith that works is in the New Testament. See, we can look at John 15 that that Jackie read. And Jesus talks about producing fruit. How can you produce fruit without work? So Jesus himself says, if you believe in me, you will obey my law. Actually, he says, you will obey my commandments. So if you're obeying his commandments, there's got to be something to do. Not because it saves you, Because you're saved. See, you could look at 1 Corinthians 3.13 or Ephesians 2.10 and there's many. The Gospels say we should know a disciple by his fruit, Matthew 7.16 through 20. On the last day, Jesus will grant the kingdom to those who have fed the hungry, welcomed the stranger and clothed the naked. But he will send away those who have done nothing. 
So how can you be saved by just saying, hey God, forgive me? According to the Bible, it's not that way. Faith in God, in the grace of Him, produces salvation. From that, produces works. Without that, you have no faith. See, Paul denies that anyone can be saved by their works or works of the law. But he stresses the need for good works as much as Jesus and James do. And seeing as Jesus is God, I will take his authority above anybody's. But you see, a Christian must translate his new identity in Christ into moral actions. Actions both James and Paul cause works. In fact, Paul, like James, stresses the necessity of works on many occasions. 1 Corinthians 3.13 says, God will test what sort of work each one has done. Galatians 6.4 says, each one should test his own actions. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Which God prepared in advance for us to do. So if we're not supposed to work, why has God prepared work for us to do? See, in Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts in faith is expressing itself through love. Which I'm telling you, love is the hardest work you'll ever do. Because it's easy to love the people you like. But we're called to love everybody. Equally. That's when it gets hard. See, so we see Paul and James agree that the only faith that justifies is is the one that works. See, Martin Luther said this, He who wants to be a true Christian must be truly a believer. But he does not truly believe if works of love do not follow his faith. And Paul and James concur that real faith works indeed. They agree at every point. Both say genuine disciples keep the law. Galatians 5.3 and James 2.10. And both of them praise the law. James says it is royal, perfect and gives liberty. Paul says it is holy, righteous and good. Both say obedience is what counts. Both say true faith works in love. Both say we show our faith by what we do. And Jesus says the same in Matthew seven fifteen through 21. And Paul says, Doers of the law will be justified, Romans 2, 13. And James says, Doers of the word will be blessed, in James 1, 20 through 25. The text goes on. And in the same way was not also Rahab, The prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. 
So we get to case study number four. A helpful pagan. See, Rahab was not a believer at the time. Rahab was a pagan living in a pagan society that actually was just going to be overthrown by God. You see, true faith is helpful towards man. See, James loves to use illustrations. So, and he surely had his audience captivated when he chose Abraham. Because he's writing to Jewish people. And they looked at Abraham as a hero. See, he was the father of Israel. He was like the George Washington of America. You see, many regard him as the most righteous man that ever lived. But James readers might not have been so receptive when he chooses to use Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute, as evidence that genuine faith is effective towards man. See, Rahab is a, is a surprising example. See, since she is a, a, a minor and unsavory figure who contrasts sharply with Abraham, it's like he took different spectrums of the field here and said, we're going to use the most righteous and now we're going to use a hawker. You see... Abraham is the father of Israel, a male and the greatest patriarch. And Rahab is a Canaanite, a foreigner and a disreputable prostitute. Yet Rahab illustrates real faith for an intellectual conversion to orthodoxy. Ideas would have not saved her. You wouldn't have convinced her to become a Christian. See, she had to act to be saved. See, let's recall Rahab's story. After the Israelites escaped Egypt and wandered for 40 years, they finally entered Canaan, intending to conquer it under Joshua's leadership. First, however, Joshua said, I'm going to send two spies in to evaluate whether Jericho, the first major city they would encounter, was or was not alert and ready to resist them. That's Joshua 2.1. And the spies entered the house of Rahab. Really, it was a logical place to go, wasn't it? For her house was on the outer wall of the city. And besides, she was a prostitute. Entertaining visitors was her game. That was what she did for a living. So that's not suspicious at all, is it? She was just getting a couple of clients. But the king of Jericho heard of the spies and commanded Rahab to present the men to him. But instead, she hid them on the roof, denied knowledge of their mission, and told the king's men that they had departed in Joshua 2, 2 through 6. And then the king's men trusted Rahab. I don't know why they did. She was a prostitute. And ran down a road to find the spies who remained on the roof. When Rahab went up to them, she told them her motivation. 
Joshua 2, 9-11 says, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord died, dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came, you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihan, Sihan Hon, and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven, above and on the earth below. See, that sounds like real faith. But we know faith was genuine by her works. Rehab acted on her faith. When she had despised and sent the king's men to the wrong road, she aligned herself with Israel rather than her own people. You see, Rahab said the Lord's mighty deeds convinced her that he reigned over heaven and earth. She asked the men to spare her and her, her, and her family to join them to the people of God. And boy, did he. See, further actions supply additional proof of her faith. She helped the spies escape the city, letting them down a rope from their window. Finally, she kept a scarlet cord in her window so that when Israel defeated Jericho, there they knew where she was. And really, they just did a marching band around Jericho like this, and then suddenly... Jericho fell, and the only place that wasn't born was Rahab's house. And Rahab happens to be in the lineage of Jesus. Jesus has a prostitute in his family line. You know, we think we've got messed up families. Jesus got a messed up family. So you see, Rahab's faith led her to action. She welcomed the spies. She hid them and sent them away safely because she believed the God of Israel was alive. She risked her life, therefore, and she gained it because she risked it. Thus, Rahab showed that real faith, living faith, is effective Towards mankind. See, her deeds were not especially notable. At one level, we see nothing but a clever deception. She did not do much, really, did she? But she did what had to be done when it had to be done. You see, one could even say, the world needs more Rahabs. We do. We need people that will do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. You see, unlike Abraham, socially, yet like Abraham, spiritually, Rahab showed that real faith works. Intellectual belief in God would save neither Rahab nor the spies she sheltered. See, action spared both Rahab and the spies. Her work 
Her work saved her. Because she had put faith in a God that made her have action because of what she believed. See, if Abraham demonstrates that real faith is effective Godward, Rahab showed that real faith is effective towards man. See, small deeds make big differences. The little things we do for people make huge differences. We might not even see the difference they make in that person's life. But it's the trickle-down effect. See, timely works adorned and verify a profession of our faith. It says, I have action because of what I believe. I act this way because I believe this way. See, James says, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messages and sent them out by another way. She did not earn her salvation, but her works vindicated her potential dubious claim to believe. Her works publicly announced that she was indeed a God-fearing woman. See, John Wesley, who founded the Methodist Church, went to Oxford Seminary for five years. Then became a minister of the Church of England, where he served about ten years, and then later became a missionary to the colony of, of Georgia. See, Wesley was largely a failure in ministry. And we don't look at Wesley like that today. Though he was, as we, we would count men, very pious, he had really good religious things. For years, for years, he got up at 4, 4 a.m. every morning. And we, by the way, we go, wow, he got up at 4 a.m. I will just tell you this. They went to bed when it got dark. So it, it, to me, that's not... To, when you hear 4, 4 a.m., I'm like, wow, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty solid. But he was at bed at 7 or 8 because that's when it got dark. And he prayed and read his Bible for hours before going to prisons and hospitals to minister to the neediest people. He would teach, pray, and help others until late at night on the way to America, there was a great storm at sea when he came to America to preach it in Georgia. Waves broke over the deck and wind sh- shredded the sails until the little ship seemed ready to sink. Wesley, lacking insurance of his own salvation, he'd been a Church of England pastor, pre- preacher, messenger for over 10 years now. He's on the way to Georgia to take the gospel to save people. And he questions his assurance of his own salvation. He was terrified that he was going to die. Despite all his good works, death was a frightening question mark. See, on the other side of the ship, though, there was a group of men who sang hymns. So he walked up to them and he asked them, how they could sing when they might die that very night. 
they replied, if this ship goes down, we will go up to be with our Lord forever. And Wesley wondered how they could know that. He knew Jesus was the Savior of the world, but did not know Jesus had saved him. Worse, he thought the solution lay in his works. What more have they done than I have done, he said. He added, I came to convert the heathen, but who shall convert me? Wesley worked hard but fruitlessly in Georgia and returned to England in disgrace. And then Wesley went to London and found his way one night to an informal service where he heard a man reading a sermon by Martin Luther explaining that genuine faith trusts Christ alone for salvation apart from works. As he listened, Wesley realized he had relied on his works and not on Christ alone. That night he wrote in his journal about a quarter quarter before nine while he, Luther, was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine. And saved me from the law of sin and death. You see, people like Wesley need to hear the doctrine of justification by faith. If someone wonders how to get right with God, if he thinks, what more could I do? He needs Paul's gospel. Paul says we cannot climb into heaven, rather God lifts us up. The answer to the question of the, of the question 33 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this. Justification is an act of God's free grace. Whereon he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. And the catechism perfectly answers all who know that their sin alienates them from God. And who know, now wonder if perhaps there is something they must do to gain God's favor. There's nothing we can do to gain God's favor. That is not what James is talking about. We cannot earn a better place in heaven. We cannot earn salvation. God is not going to love you anymore if you do all the good works that you can. God does not love me anymore than I, when I was at my worst. He can't. It's impossible for him. You see, James is really targeting a different audience. See, he speaks to people who have grown up with biblical religion, but never claimed it personally. They assume that their heritage, their knowledge, and their respectable guarantee God's favor. See, in today's terms, James addresses people who say, Leave me alone. I'm already a Christian. I'm a decent person. I have a family. I attend church. 
I agree with, with the creeds. I believe, believe, but I have no action. See, for that situation, James says this, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. He urges self-inspection. Look at your own life. Do you prove your faith in Christ? With your deeds of sacrificial love? Do you show people that are hard to love that you love them? Because we are called to love not people we like, All people. James 2 says, True faith manifests itself in works of service to man and obedience to God. False faith offers no service to fellow man. It offers warm wishes and nothing more. False faith offers no obedience to God. As with the demons. Remember, even the demons say that God is real. But there's no obedience. False faith. True faith offers costly obedience to God. As Abraham proved. I will never tell anybody that it's, that I will always say grace is free. But it's going to cost you something. Because you can't live the same way and live for Christ. You have to give up stuff. See, true faith offers costly service to fellow men. This may help us understand what James means when he says that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. See, justification is always a forensic or legal concept, but the term has more than one sense. See, in the old covenant, a judge was responsible to condemn the guilty and acquit. Or justify the innocent. Deuteronomy 25.1 In the case of a dispute, a judge was supposed to justify the party that was innocent, righteous, and obedient to the law. Ideally, the declaration of innocence matched the character of of the defendant. Although the defendant's character was never the precise issue in the courtroom. But... In the New Testament, we discover how important the last point is. For in God's courtroom, no one can be justified by God on the basis of his or her innocence or righteousness before God. The verdict of innocence comes by grace through faith on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection. We get it because Jesus did it for us. Justified not because of anything we can do, but because of everything that Jesus has done. Because it rests on Jesus' righteousness of Christ alone. Because that righteousness is imputed to us who believe in him and are united to him. See, that's why Paul can say, God, in Romans 4-5, God justifies the wicked. See, the good deeds following from faith vindicate us. Declare what we do belong to, Christ. It is no legal fiction. It's not a technicality. 
That releases us from the condemnation we deserve. You see, here's the beauty of this. The whole beauty of this is that you can't be judged on your works. But you should have works. And like I say all the time, I'm amazed that God will use me to do this. I know who I am. Deep down, I know who I am. The only other being that knows that is God himself. Knows who I am 100%. Yet he chooses to use me. So do you know what I say? I say, use me. I'm amazed that you want to. And I say this. I get to be used by God. I get to be used by God. You get to be used by God. When you do works of of grace and you do works of love, you are being used by God. You allow that to happen in your life. And if you are a new creation, what would stop you? So God is right to permit us to enter his heaven, his presence. Neither faith nor our works are the basis of our salvation. But living faith does work. If you have a living faith, if you truly believe in Jesus Christ, it should be a living faith, and that living faith should have action to it. You see, it's living faith that actually saves. That's what saves us. Believing. Doing is just part of it. That's why James says, you show, me your, you show me your faith, I'll show you my faith by my works. You, I don't have to tell you I believe, you should see that I believe in God. So, we're in chapter 3 next week, and we're going to be reading... Verses 1 through 12. And we're going to begin. Who can tame the tongue? I know it's not me. So read James 3, 1 through 12 to get ready for next week's sermon. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God. That we are saved by grace and grace alone through faith in you. But that faith will produce some sort of work, some sort of change in our life, some sort of actions that that change us. That help us to be uh, more like Jesus, to reflect the Son as you have called us to do. And we thank you for that, God. We thank you that you are changing us. Some of us faster than others, but you are changing us. And helping us to become more like Jesus day by day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.